Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Line, the sports podcast from PR Week. Hello and welcome to The Line, the sports podcast from PR Week. I'm Richard Gillis and I'm here with Danny Rogers, Editor-in-Chief of PR Week. And we're going to start by talking about how football transfers became a marketing story. Let's talk for a minute about the podcast before we get going. We've got a a group of guests that we will introduce in a moment, but... um, why are we doing this? I remember a lunch. We, uh, I remember it because I paid for it, as I remember. But uh, the, the idea, we've batted around for a while. But let, let's get into why we're doing it. Well, first of all, I'm doing it because I, I love sport. I mean, I love playing sport. I love watching sport. And I love talking about sport. But professionally, sport has become such a big part uh, of the job that I do, which is writing about marketing and communications. And it seems to me that the sports stories, where once they were back page issues... Now the content of sport, the stories around sport, and now front page issues. And, you know, it's such a big industry with so many fascinating people, like some of the guys we've got here today. Such big characters and such big content. Okay, so let's get going. So to help us do that, we've got three people who know this world intimately. Amanda Doherty of Dial Square and formerly of Arsenal and the FA. Next to Amanda sits Jim Dowling, Managing Director of Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency. But first, I'm turning to Tariq Panjar of the New York Times and author of Football's Secret Trade. So I want, Tariq, before we get going, I want you to sort of frame this subject for us. Let's talk about your book for a minute. I was just looking through some of the quotes. Got some lovely quotes on the book cover. Uh, Nothing like it in any other sport or industry, although there are similarities with the trade in thoroughbred horses that exchange hands for millions of pounds at auction houses. Jonathan Wilson says, hugely important book. Uh, Tariq Panja is a top-ranked journalist, says David Conn of The Guardian. And Frank, 46, from Prostatin on Amazon, (laughs) said, better than I thought it was going to be. Gave it four stars. So, uh, what up? (laughs) Cost Um, cost quite a lot of money to to get all that, especially David Conn. 
Martin Ziegler there, you are also a bit of money exchanged hands there. Um, so what's happening? Get, take us into this world of, of transfers. Why are we talking about it? Well, we're talking about it because, um, well, first of all, we're all obsessed with football. It is, the, it is the global sport. And it is now a 365 days a year sport. Um, the, the, you know, the likes of cricket and, and other sports have, have all year round, they've, they've had to play a second, play second fiddle, really. So the transfer market has become a season in itself and perhaps gets as, as much attention, as many column inches as, as the game. We've just had a season start three weeks ago, yet I would say the first three weeks of the season have still been dominated by the transfer market. Uh, there's, a, there's an element of fantasy to it as well as uh, for the clubs to sell a dream to, to the players and, and the fans and the fans to kind of think, yeah, you know, we're going to get one more centre forward. We'll get we'll get this left back in and we might we might win the league. There's, there's all of that. Um, and of course, the, the players are what drive drive the interest that their stories. The, the Manchester United, for example, um, You've got these massive personalities there. How much are they going to spend? Are we going to are we going to get Lukaku? Are we going to go for Morata? It was it was it was. These are the last pieces of the jigsaw, and 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 you know it, it feeds into the, the TV story, right? Essentially, all the money that we've seen being spent. You mentioned a number there, one point four billion. Did you say for the? I think that's quoted in the New York Times. It's one point five six billion. <laughs> Right, that's for the Premier League. Now that that sounds like a, and it is an extremely, extremely large number. But when we think about the eight point three billion uh, pounds the twenty Premier League teams are going to get over the next three seasons, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. The the agents know that, the players know that, and the clubs are, are vying for the best talent. Um, and and that's why the numbers are so big. Um, Neymar is is a, is a different um, proposition, of course. Because um, Paris Saint Germain is effectively owned by, um, you know, a country that has more more money than than any than any other country. Then spending um, on sport is a big focus for it. Of course, it happens at a time when Qatar is is, is facing a, a massive political crisis. It's, its neighbours have, have have turned against it: Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, and it needs to show. Look, guys, we're we're still here. Sport puts them on the map, put them on the map, and, and certainly got them all the column inches over the last few weeks. OK, fantastic. Now, we're going to talk about the sort of meaning, and we'll come back to Neymar, and we'll talk about the branding sort of issues and how, and social media, etc. Um, Amanda, I just want to uh, talk to you first of all. I want to go back before we go forward. Um, so when I was preparing for this podcast, myself and Danny asked a load of Football Hacks, who was the best person to talk about football PR and comms from club through to international level? And uh, they all said you. So um, we asked you, and remarkably, you said yes, and you're, you're, here you are. Um, 96, you're sort of, uh, I looked, on you, looked you up on LinkedIn, and on 90, <laughs> 96 is when you started at Arsenal. What was it like back then? Take us back to that period. Um, well, I started as the media officer at Arsenal. I was the number two to Claire Tomlinson, who's now at Sky Sports News. Um, and we set up the press office at Arsenal. So our first dealing with transfers was the following summer, the summer of 97. So I was taking a look back at what we did at the time, and it was very much bread and butter PR. 
because it was a news release, a press conference, a photo call. Um, the obligatory scarf held in the air and the shirt in the stadium. And it was with Mark Overmars and the powder blue suit of Emmanuel Petit. Um, and at the time, we were just about to launch Arsenal.com. So we weren't, we weren't even internet ready at the time. And in terms of engagement between fans and players outside of match day, it was bin liners full of letters that were written to each individual player. In terms of the, the signings themselves, the you know, the idea around the, the news coverage to be garnered at the time was just a positive for the club. It was a statement of intent for the next season about challenging for the Premier League. It was about providing positivity um, for the fan base. But also what's really important around signing new players is what happens internally because players who are already at the club, they want to know who's coming in. They want to know if they're going to be um, stood side by side for somebody who can help them challenge for the league. But also, there are those players who their positions are then under threat. So they become more competitive and it drives them to do better as well. And equally, the staff at the club, there was always a buzz around the club when somebody new came in. So that's one part of it and, and also the dynamics around the commerciality of football are very different to what Tarek's just spoken about now there was money in football in terms of broadcast but it was probably around half a billion pounds at the time so actually rev from a revenue perspective other strands were looked at very closely and I don't know if anyone remembers but one part of player signing were, was club call and if no one remembers club call it was on the teletext pages and people paid 60 pence a minute to hear the latest and there was a flash headline on there of Arsenal set to sign striker question mark and people would call up so when you would have the signing, the first interview would be with club calls so the club could extract um, a revenue before from that. Before you went to the newspapers? or before There would be the main press conference, um, but it would be straight after that. So it would, go out, it would go out before the newspapers dropped the next day, so it'd be done at the same time. But of course, now we're talking everything being instantaneous, and as soon as something's announced, it's tweeted, whereas back then... There was actually a, a deadline on all these things, um, an embargo on all these things. Um, and equally at a similar time, the Arsenal magazine brought in a lot of money, a lot of money. So the, the first big sit-down in-depth interview with a new signing was with the, the, the monthly magazine. So very different in 97 to, to what it is today. And I think over the years... It's changed slightly, but the, the dynamics of a signing up until probably last year, you would say, with, with Pogba, have been very similar because you tend to get more mileage out of players once they've started playing for you. Yeah, so you still had owned media and earned media to communicate your Absolutely. new signing. It's just that the owned media were very, very different in those days, possibly the earned media too. Yeah, absolutely. So, the, the, I mean, the, and also the the sort of old standards are still there aren't they in, in some cases you still see the shirts being held up one of my favourite bits of a Real Madrid transfer is the physio sponsored physio where they all put their thumbs up and it's you know and there's sort of just very very basic branding stuff going on so we, you mentioned Pogba we're going to come back to Pogba because obviously that was a big moment and I think it is worth dwelling on um I'll introduce Jim Dowling so Jim's managing director of Havas uh, Sport and Entertainment uh agency cake jim 
as a QPR fan, this is yeah. sort of probably, yeah. I'm guessing it's of passing interest to you all this. I, I, yeah, I, don't, yeah. you, I don't know if you knew the, the, the window was happening. No, I have to say we've had a very encouraging window because we've signed somebody from Exeter City and as a QPR fan I feel much more comfortable at that rather than where we were three or four years ago bringing in people from God knows where on God knows what. So I, was try, I was trying to remember who I, the, I'm who quite the, content. Who, who, who the record QPR sort of signing was that's a very good question Christopher uh, Sambo Christopher Sambo I think would be pretty high up on the list this guy that came in mysteriously from somewhere <laughs> briefly under Harry and then Harry, Harry Redknapp involved, yes enough. lots of people yeah. involved and, and Christopher came and then Christopher went and QPR went down so happy days Richard thank you <laughs> you're you you're sort of uh, well and truly in the sports business these days but you you started out in PR. Mm. Any football stories you want to tell? Any memories of you, Arsenal's sort There's of two things. Website? It's nice to see Amanda because one of the first PR jobs I ever did working at my first agency was launching the Arsenal website. And I had the pleasure of uh, introducing Arsene Wenger to the concept of the internet and secondly the concept of <laughs> Arsenal.com and the fact that fans could not necessarily send letters in by the bin bag but could directly communicate with the club. And, of course, this is one era ending and another one starting. The old era being George Graham and uh, Tony Adams and the slightly different culture that existed at the club, let's say, as opposed to what came in with Wenger. And I remember uh, showing Mr Wenger a chat forum where they had some rather virulent opinions on some (laughs) of the signings coming in, at which point Wenger stopped and went, you know, in the very gnomic way that you imagine he would, but just sat back and went... Too much uh, information can destroy the fascination. Oh. And literally the room went silent. Went, That's the most profound thing I've heard a football manager say ever. But so not, was, not only did he bring pasta and training yeah. regimes, he was ahead of the game as that well. That was also followed by a very casual shot next to an old-style computer, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. A move on from the scarf. But yeah, it was, yeah, it was good days. The Line is sponsored by Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency. I'm just wondering about. Let's go back to Neymar and Pogba, these big, big name transfers. What's the value, Tarek, to a to a club? What is there? What's the? Why are they doing it? What the, at its root? Pogba first. What well, I think I've read recently that for, for Adidas, he sort of his performance on the field. I don't think I'm going to be that controversial in saying this. Last year, I don't think he performed in the way we would have expected of the world's most expensive player to perform. He was, he was in Manchester United's midfield. They had, uh, he played OK. Um, that might be a function of the Mourinho, Mourinho team. It was an interview today yeah. and it was quite a practical, um, prosaic way of playing to win football matches and they, they finished sixth in the league, won a cup. And then you, but, but then away off the field... The, the Pogba brand and the way Pogba sort of carries himself is did resonate with a lot of people, um, especially young people. Um, the the his, his sort of uh, goal celebrations, the the dab, is it the dance move, etc. I mean, the fact I know this is <laughs> it shows it has resonated a little bit. Um, I'm nodding safely, <laughs> and um, and and he shifted quite a lot of gear for Adidas, and it wasn't. And it wasn't sports gear per se. Yeah. It was it was Pogba wearing yeah. what Pogba likes to wear, and it shifted a lot of units. Now, 
obviously Manchester United are sponsored by, by Adidas and there's a synergy there. But, but what we've got to see here is these players, very, very few players, but the, the very top, they, they are as um, relevant or as large as, as some of the teams they're playing in. They're massive brands in themselves and their personality often supersedes the, 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 the game they're playing, I think. And therefore you get this huge schism between the, the club and the player when the player might be shifting a lot of Adidas and they may be engaging with millions of people on social media, but they're not performing for the club that is paying their salary. That's got to be a problem for the clubs. I actually think the price tag is not down to the player, it's down to the market. So I, I always feel a bit uncomfortable when you read the headlines of, you know, X million pound player flop because it's not their it's not their fault mm. and Pogba's an exceptional player and first and foremost Manchester United and any big club in the country would purchase the player because of what they can do on the pitch because everything to do with with branding you're right about individuals absolutely he's so charismatic he fits in with all the things that they're they're trying to achieve it goes beyond sport into lifestyle but ultimately a player becomes um, that big because of how good they are on the pitch and the success that they bring with the football team that they're playing in. So, I think there's a differential mm. in mm. in that. The other part of it would I was I was thinking of it the other way round in that if you take a player like Paul Scholes who is recognised by many as a player of a generation, and he was signed for Man United, even if Adidas was his you know his sponsor. I couldn't imagine him as a personality standing there dancing with Stormzy. Mm -mm. So I think it was just one of those moments in time that everything became aligned for Manchester United, Adidas and the player. It ticked all the boxes and I'm not too sure how often it comes around where it's so seamless. They will have worked so hard to achieve that. The campaign was really smooth. It was very well executed. But I'm not sure how people are going to be able to replicate it so well. I was going to ask, you know, what is it like to be a communications director for a football club now or a marketing director of a football club at this time? Do you have any control anymore over these things? I think the difference, the difference now is, um, you know, I haven't been at Arsenal for several years, but what you would have for many years is there was still a mystery and a secrecy around who you were, you were signing. So that first announcement was still a big announcement, whereas now you have a build-up over a long period of time. So transfers always took quite a long time to, to get done, but people didn't know about them. And now with so many people involved in a transfer, whether it's medical or analytics or a agents or managers or chief executives of football clubs, agents, players themselves. There is just such a wide group of people that are involved that it's never quiet anymore. And also because of technology, connectivity is so much easier. So people know something about somebody somewhere. So I don't think you can control the announcement in the way that you used to be able to do. So I think where clubs have been quite smart is they know somebody's coming in, so they will start to tease and they will start to, to offer for a build-up to when eventually a player signs, they have this piece of content that works for them. And I think what's very smart now, and again going back to, to, to Pogba, it actually moved away from being a UK-focused announcement to a global one, and United were just about to go on tour to the Far East, so the timing of the announcement worked just as about as, about as when they were go, going to play in, I think, was it China? 
Imagine. So, yeah, so I think in, in that sense, people think about it slightly differently. And it's the same with, OK, he's not a player, but Pep Guardiola came in last summer. Manchester City were really smart about his signing. Not only did they bring him in and do a big fan event outside the stadium, but it was the same time they rebranded the Crest. So they used yeah. that as a platform for them to, to talk about something that was important to the strategy of the club. So the marketing, the communications has to be very fluid, very flexible. You've got to be much more opportunistic to make sure that everything, all parts of the orchestra work together when you know something's going to happen. I think you have both. One part is, is about um, working the opportunity, but the other is, is the planning and what you want to achieve as a club. A lot of clubs now, which they wouldn't have necessarily known or put on paper back then, have got a strategy for the club. You know, somebody like Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, they have a strategy, they have certain values, there are things that they want to be able to, to achieve. So they are able to plan in advance. I think certainly, I know Manchester United do it, Arsenal definitely do it, in that you you gather content in advance and then you slice and dice it and use it at the right time. So whether you are using it to... Um, promote a player signing or if it's around now there's a balance because of all the money in the game people think that clubs and players don't give enough back actually the the clubs in the Premier League have done an extraordinary amount for um, community programs and initiatives whether it's charity social inclusion education for many many years but it's not the tasty stuff that people want to read about I think that, that the points you raised there about Guardiola and City and brand values and strategy and all the rest of it I think brings the sort of the uncomfortable stuff that people don't like seeing or talking about because people like to think of football clubs as football organisations and CEOs and chairmen only care about uh, what goes on on the pitch and winning trophies but, but everything you've talked about to me makes them sound like you're talking about a brand or a big entertainment company thinking about um, serving customers and a worldwide market so Real Madrid will frequently quote that they've got you know half a billion fans worldwide you can also call that a global customer base. And a player or a crest is an asset, which they can bring extra revenue streams in. And I think that's the bit where you sort of go... Then you start to see, OK, Pogba is the perfect storm, but if you're faced with one midfielder who can bring you 10 assists and another midfielder who can bring you 10 assists, but the other one could perhaps do a little bit more in the marketing field, then I wonder who's going to get the nod. I don't think that's anything new, though. It's just the way we talk about football, because if you go back through any football club's history, there's been an evolution of a crest. Mm. It just wasn't called branding. You know, if you, if you think about how football clubs run, many clubs, Arsenal's obviously changed ownership over the last six, seven years, but the, the principles, the values are still the same as what they were, you know, many decades ago. And there are certain things, all you're doing is you're picking them out yeah. and trying to amplify them and trying to use them to, to the best of your ability to, to gather more fans yeah. to be part of your family. On, on, the, on, the, on the crest, I guess, probably right, but, but in terms of what you're saying, the, the, global, the global fan base, um, and that's the tension, isn't it, between those fans that we used to come in the rain, we used to queue up when they, we were crap, and now, look, you've charged us up the nose, yeah. and now you're just yeah. going to China, and all, all of this stuff... And I think it, it, there is that tension there. And if you if you do meet um, a diehard fan of any team, and they do exist in China or India and Ghana and Nigeria, they they, they will 
tell you the, the lineup from a 1975 Cup mm-hmm. final as much as the guy yeah. who's there. Mm-hmm. So they, they feel they've got the ownership to it. And it's kind of the, the best example I've seen of a crest change for the global audience was um, West Ham recently, wasn't it? it was they, 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 they've got London. They added London to, to, mm-hmm. to their brand yeah. because West Ham is, you know, West Ham is... Uh, East End of London, etc. Now in the London Stadium. They're now they're in yeah. the London Stadium. But also, cities are very important. They're they're an underrated part of this, aren't they? City, you know, the, if you're looking at it from a global in a global sense, um, the big major cities are where cultural relevance yeah. takes place. That's where you can get youth. I think, yeah, because you see the brands doing that as well. Adidas again, an example, and other brands like that, are always fixated not on countries and markets but actually how can we be strong in London and Paris and New York and you've got, you got, you got a very good example of that which would be um, Emirates Airline right yeah. look, if you look at the teams that that company sponsors it flies into major hubs mm. and it sponsors football teams in 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 in, in those hubs you've got uh, Arsenal in London Paris Milan yeah. it, it is part of their their, their global strategy uh, is a city strategy, yeah. um, and also with players, I guess yeah. you know uh, we, we've. It's really hard. I mean, Sunderland. Um, I think it's always we, we, Sunderland. We, it's we, always, I think we've heard the Sunderland or Stoke. Yeah. Kind of Whoever it is, you want to keep. Kind of heard them it's, talk it's about it as well, haven't we? You yeah, know, yeah. I think they've talked about it. You know, to, to, they've got a. There's two. There's two stories. They've got to convince, um, you know, players to to move to to. Um, Parts of the country that are not maybe as cosmopolitan as others, yeah. Sunderland, by, by by offering them more more money to, to to go there, to go to to go to, to to play in certain areas, and also there was an interesting story whether this will happen or not, and you know I'm a, I don't know maybe a traditionalist makes me a little bit uncomfortable, <coughs> is where your training ground is going to be. So there, there is a school of thought that says look. We play once at most twice a week in, 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 in the stadium cup game or a league game, wherever we are. Why don't we let the players, why don't we have a training ground in London or in Manchester or wherever where they feel comfortable, where we're more likely to get them to sign and then they'll go up there for the game because, you know, that, that you can convince someone. And, and the model for this is a, is a team in Chechnya, I think, which, which spent a lot of money buying... Um, world-class players, but said to them, "Look, you're going to be living in Moscow. Yeah, and we'll yeah. fly you to." Is it, that's an interesting. Mm. You know, it's really the, that community link. I mean, that breaks that community Sad, link. Yeah, in some way, right. doesn't it? And you, you made an interesting point about um, fans overseas, and they can You know, they are genuine fans because quite often when you listen to people in sports marketing, they quite often are quite dismissive of the social media numbers. And you, obviously they are flaky in terms of, you know, they're, some of them are just clicks on a Facebook or, but you are, the variation of what a fan is um, changes. Um, but it's also, it is important to remember that they are genuine fans in some cases. Some, you know, a lot and, of and, cases. Yeah. A lot, a lot you of cases. listen to the, again, the, the, the worry. I mean, it used to be that, Clubs weren't allowed to call themselves brands, and I remember that was a you know, and it's still the case, and fans hate, yeah, hate that. Um, there's now a tendency to look at f- uh, football clubs as sort of harvesting data. If you listen to the sort of data industry, and they want clubs to be almost like versions of Amazon, where you're transaction. It's a reason to buy stuff. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a, 
a salient, just a relationship which is there to be exploited and commercially exploited. Mm, so it's quite a tricky, it's a difficult one. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot of marketers are selling, selling, selling that right now. And, you know... You know, football. Football for I covered FIFA quite a bit, and you know they they always uh, have their annual reports saying you know it's been a, it's been um, away from some of the stuff we've read about with the, with the, with the various lawsuits and criminal cases, etc. But selling the World Cup, it, there's always been this kind of upward trajectory, and they've been very um, there, there've been a lot of backslapping among themselves. Look, look, we've 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 got revenue going up, etc. But Effectively, essentially, football should be—it's the world's game, and people, you know, as much as you want to need a glass of water, a lot of people need their fix of football, and it's—it's it's such a—it's quite an easy sell. Now, if if this if this thing if this sport is such an intrinsic part of 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 individuals' lives, and that 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 connection is being used then to start selling them all this all this stuff that they may or may not want, that might make few people feel a little bit uncomfortable I guess that much data collection of someone who is who can't live without it I guess right Jim was saying earlier that the average viewer of a football match on television right Mm -hmm. was was somebody in their early 40s if you're going to attract younger people to engage with the actual sport itself you know is all this stuff damaging that well yes arguably but I don't think the younger audience notices that yet I always look at um they're just getting into football in a different way the the old-fashioned way of the 40 year old getting his my 40 year old dad if he liked football that much would have got me into football going come on son we're off down to loftus road this weekend um that doesn't work in the same way anymore i look at i go take my son to play football on saturday mornings and i see all the kids turning up in their football shirts and there's a barcelona there's a real madrid there's a Borussia dortmund shirt and then might be a smattering of chelsea and whatever but but that's it and it's and, and those kids are getting into football through FIFA through Champions League interestingly that's the dream is to win the Champions League not the cup final when I was a kid you know so they're just going into it into it in a different way there's, um, a, there's the weird it, kid in a QPR shirt isn't there yeah yes yeah, so unfortunately hovering yeah. in the corner yeah. one. he's doing yeah. okay though he's, he's a sort of eccentric he's an eccentric <laughs> he is, yeah. Jacob Rees Mogg character <laughs> <laughs> just an, you know, it's an yeah. affectation he's wearing a monocle in a QPR shirt yeah but, but, think, but it, 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 what it is doing is, is I guess there is a loosening of the local community as in I must support my local team kids are still loving and enjoying football but getting into it in a different way I think clubs and also the Premier League are encouraging people to get football in, 
involved in football in different way as well. The Premier League are working really hard on changing the perception just around the amount of money going into the game. Um, they've set up primary stars. I don't know if you, you saw the launch a few months back, but it's getting um, educational programmes into all primary schools in, in England and Wales over the next few years. So that's working with the clubs as well. And you had players like Juan Mata and Theo Walcott working on that at that campaign. So it's helping with, you know, literature and numeracy, also getting kids you know, up out of their seats and playing sports. So, yes, there is a lot of money within the game, but actually a lot of money is being spent on really good things within this country. And we've not to forget as well the amount of money coming into Premier League clubs through particularly the broadcasting rights um, goes back into our economy as well. Mm-hmm. It's probably over, is it £2 billion in mm-hmm. tax they paid last year? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. The, 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 the other kind of... Uh, part to, to all of this I guess is um, the affordability again just we talk, talked about it earlier now my, my, my one thought you know a lot of clubs are trying to um, like the big marketing piece is also um, the friendly club aspect of it which they look like quite rapacious big money clubs yeah. now if you look at the revenue streams the three revenue streams there's only two well Manchester United, say, in the Premier League, have got a very um, easy division in, in three parts of um, television, commercial and stadia. The, the, the rest of them, right, take away two or three, again, of the very big ones, would have almost 80% of their revenue is coming from TV. Yeah. So I, I would say, I would argue maybe a club... Because the Premier League, one of the things it sells is passion. Full stadiums is one of the things it sells the world. Yeah. We've got the most passionate sets of football supporters in the world. Now, if you read some of the articles, I know Amanda's here, uh, ex-Arsenal, there was, there's been a lot of stories about how quiet the Emirates is and, and, and some of the other stadiums, not just the Emirates, Old Trafford's pretty quiet sometimes. The ticket prices in the UK are really high. However, if you think that that as a revenue stream is getting is diminishing more and more as TV revenue goes higher and higher. It could could go higher again. Why not slash yeah. your ticket yeah. prices as a CSR or even more than that? It's great, great for your, for your image. I mean, I, I remember asking that question to um, the marketing manager of, or marketing director of Milan, AC Milan, and he he literally like, spat his coffee all over me mm. and laughed in his face. I said, "Well, why not? You know, slash, why let him in free?" You know, TV. Your money's coming from media. TV abhors a, a vacuum. A, you know, can't bear an empty stadium. And there just there is a cultural shift there that is going to be really difficult to get beyond. I don't know what you think about that, Amanda. But it's very hard, you know, to to, to go to football clubs and say, okay, let's slash prices. I think prices. I, I this is I. It's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I do think I don't understand why, if you're a sponsor, you wouldn't be the hero here. Why which is you what, wouldn't which come is what in Virgin and did. Be the hero. Yeah. Which is what Word, Virgin did, which with the twenties, twenties plenty, yeah. uh, and they subsidised that, and the PR they got off the back of it was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. There was also um, the cup, the predecessor of the Carlin Cup sponsor, the bank. Oh, what's uh, their name? Capital first, One. Capital One. Capital One. A great branding exercise. Can't remember their name, but they did pay for travel. They started paying for travel. And that was a nice sponsorship activation. They started paying for away travel, etc. But the cost of, of football and sponsors 
you know, quite often are seen as a sort of sort of necessary evil. You know, they just pile the money in for the new left back and will put up with the logos. Um, but actually, as a real opportunity, you would have thought to to help the fans. And I, I'm surprised that fewer. Uh, not more of them do it. I think over the years sponsors have done different things with with clubs to engage with fans. I mean, I certainly remember a couple of instances where uh, the last season at Highbury, we had the idea, I don't know if you recall, but to turn the stadium red and white for the final game, so we gave everybody T-shirts. O2 basically paid for that, and it was the I was here moment. That was very straightforward brand exercise. Um, but we also did a piece with Citroen. Citroen was the car sponsor for a number of years with Arsenal. And actually one of the things that got them to change their approach around how they, they worked with Arsenal, um, we asked them to get involved with our charity partnership with Teenage Cancer Trust. And we asked them for one of their new vehicles so that we could work with Gerald Scarf, the, um, the artist, who did Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, um, together with a couple of our players and one of the Teenage Cancer Trust's um, um, cancer patients at the time. And they designed this car, which was then raffled. And the mileage that Citroën got out of being involved in that, it took Arsenal outside of the sports pages, but it brought Citroën into them. And if you look back, there's some really good pieces of social media content with Arsenal and Citroën over the years. I think they had players dressed as ballerinas at one point in time. So I do think sponsors are, are looking at more imaginative ways and creating more compelling content that works not only for their audience, but the, the wider sporting audience as well. I think they've been lower expectations of sponsors in football versus other entertainment industries. We yeah. worked in sport and live music and the contrast with putting a logo up at football ground versus a live music venue is, is ridiculous. We were, I'm a, put, put, putting Carling logos up at the Brixton Academy for the first time and they tell you they don't want you there and so it, it forces sponsors to adjust and go okay well what's our role here? Football is different because because fans have got used to saying we need money to pay these expensive wages so they're, they're, I guess they're less, there's less demand for sponsors to do more but you're absolutely right with Citroen is that, is that when sponsors go well, wait a minute people are in love with this game and if we can bring more love to this game courtesy of our role then that's when we start to, to reap the benefits It's around the narrative a lot of the time I feel mm. do, do you think do you think uh, well there's lots of sponsors that's, that's the thing it's quite a noisy marketplace isn't it yeah. I thought something that was quite interesting last week was the uh, well, the hand wringing about the the Carabao Cup draw, which was the, yes. the, the, the League Cup. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I don't know how many. All, all of us know that. If 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 it, no one was paying any attention to the League <laughs> exactly. Cup draw, right, in the first round or the second round, it was done at half past ten or eleven o'clock on a midweek, and yeah. no one paid any attention. No, there was very few. Um, people writing about it now. It's, it's a rare day when someone says, "You know, I've got to go home for the pub to watch the Carabao <laughs> Cup draw." Absolutely. Now you think they've had they've had two hits at this. If I was, you know, if I, it was just like you know, you got you know Henry Winslow someone writing a whole column in the Times about Carabao. Yeah. Now I, I'd never heard of Carabao. Yeah, I, I certainly, have, I certainly yeah, yeah. have now. Right now, yeah. what, what I'm saying is, it's, like, it's the slow cow of the East, isn't it? That's that's what a Carabao <laughs> is. Is. <laughs> is. That what it is? Yeah. You see, whether we like it or not. I actually like the fact that people are thinking about doing things differently. It doesn't mean to say that that it's right, but I just think the worst situation to be in is to tread water and to stay the same. So at least they're thinking about it differently. Whether or not it's the right conclusion is another matter. There's also the narrative of, of the football fan is always 
conser- they are conservative. They want you know the days of yore. They want the old days. And actually, that's not true in many cases. And it'll be interesting the next Premier League round of rights when they start introducing other times, potentially other ways. You know, maybe more Saturday night games potentially or morning fixtures. So it's just in terms of the, the, the response. It's an easy story as a journalist to write yeah. that all oh, the fans are against this. They're, they're traditionalists. But actually... Yeah, and then, yeah. You know, and then things change and people go, oh, that's quite a good idea. You know, yeah. the, you know, I think one of the smartest things UEFA did was, was shift the Champions League final to Saturday night. You can't do that. Champions League is always on the Wednesday. Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, well, we'd quite like some families to watch this game. It's, oh, and lo and behold... It's one of the many things that has lifted that tournament up. That's so, the same with the FA Cup final. It's now yep. it's now tea time on a Saturday, which is great for viewing figures. However, if you are a team from the north, it's a real challenge because the train services don't go back up north mm. afterwards. Yeah. And so yeah. there needs to be more communication yeah. around yeah. that to make it smoother for the people who are actually paying out the money and want to go and see the game mm. live. Totally. The Line where sport meets the marketing business. We've talked about the sort of big name transfers. I, I want to talk about one of the, one of the most exciting and, and fastest growing areas of football, which is the women's game. So we've had a summer of, of, of you know, front and back pages. Um, we're seeing brands coming into football in a way that, in, into women's football in a way that we haven't um, in the past. I just want to get your view. Arsenal were very early in the game in terms of, of the women's game. Um, wh- where's it going? What's its future? What's the, what's the genuine sort of business case for women's football, do you think? I think Arsenal were ahead of their time. And I think, unfortunately for Arsenal, the challenge was that they they were the only team at the time so they were forever winning everything sort of games 9-0 which meant it wasn't competitive which meant people didn't want to go and see it because they they knew it was going to be you know a one-sided game they knew what the result was going to be um what I do think's happened certainly in the last what would it be six seven years since the introduction of the women's super league is teams whilst they're not necessarily professional they're much more professional and clubs lose quite a lot of money on the women's game but Chelsea Manchester City Arsenal they've all invested very heavily they've all invested very heavily into the women's game so that's brilliant for it on top of that what's incredibly important is the Football Association have made it part of their four-year strategy to double the number of women's teams and girls teams in the country which means there is investment not only from the big clubs but also from the, the you know the governing body of football which can only be great for the women's game there's lots of really imaginative things going on as well to encourage girls to play football there are those that you know are interested in the, in the role models like Steph Horton or uh, Lucy Bronze but there are also those who like Little Mix and I thought what the FA did really well this summer actually ahead of the Euros um, was use the brand ambassadors they had in the players but they also did a salute which was started by Little Mix so it went out across social media to try and engage with girls you know to get their boots on and, and get playing and I think it's a really exciting time and they're just about to launch you know the new version of the Women's Super League which turns back to a winter season which I think will help the women's game as well Yeah, I think it's really exciting for, for a lot of the, the creativity you're seeing in it I think it's, it's great the women's game is getting support from from sponsors and organisations and broadcasters that are, are now starting to step up to the plate and you can see that not just in football but 
cricket this summer was a fantastic event but also the the audience in the market is clearly there I, I saw that the, the more eyeballs watching um, the women in the World Cup two years ago than they were watching the Open Championship on the BBC which is held up as one of the big staples of the end. But and that tournament was played in Canada wasn't it with kickoffs at 11 o'clock at night mm-hmm. well, I'd be interested to know not, not to sort of dampen down expectations mm-hmm. but the thing what with the cricket and, and the World Cup and, and there's Euros that, that were, were held this summer is that these are national national team competitions and um, I think people get very passionate about their country. I remember the curling um, when when the, when the Rona Mitchell or the, the, yeah. they won a, they won a, a winter gold medal and we were up you know, one o'clock in the morning watching watching curling etc. Um, what what will be the um, interesting thing to see moving forwards is not when England are playing but when Chelsea are playing Brighton in a in a, in a women's Super League game. Are those numbers um, increasing? Are the papers still as excited um, about telling those stories, but cricket too, or, or, or any sport? If we're talking about football, and also, uh, and are the sponsors as as excited um, to to get involved in in in, in sort of league play? That's, that's what I was going to ask, actually, Jim. How many brands are investing tangibly in women's sport at the moment? I don't mean just Kate clients, yeah, but yeah, any yeah, brands. Yeah. Uh, more and more. Uh, and I think the ones that um, have invested heavily from the start will reap the biggest benefit. I, I, you look at a brand like Kia, who's been supporting English cricket, women in the English cricket game. They've just been, they will reap the benefits of that long term because they're genuinely supporting not just handing over cash, but supporting the team that desperately needs it. You know, I, there was a lovely story of when Charlotte Edwards, you know, was uh, uh, heard the news that actually the England team were going to get a sponsor four or five years ago or something. It was like she was, and she might get paid thirty thousand pounds a year for a salary. You know, she pulled the car over because she was shocked. You know, this is this is not long ago, um, and but you know, it, as with all these things, you know, brands will don't uh, want return on their investment, which isn't just coming from feeling good and supporting people. They want to see audiences. But it, 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 it works with other people working in concert with one another. Broadcasters giving uh, more airtime to sports so that we can fall in love with those sports is a good thing. Brands will follow. Any other examples of big brands investing in women's sport? Women's SSE, what I would throw in. Right. FA yeah. Cup Absolutely. sponsorship. And they don't sponsor... They don't sponsor anything in, in, in the men's in the men's game at all. I don't think so. They've kind of got ownership of of, of, of that. But you, just on, on 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 terms of broadcasters, you know, we what we I guess we haven't talked about is how we're all watching sport now. And uh, you know, we have um, the OTT, for example, w- women's sport, um, women's football, etc. Uh, could you see that being part of a long tail somewhere? I've streamed online and build a build a um a, a decent a decent um audience that will then translate into more mainstream TV. there there is a i mean there is an argument to suggest that 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 the traditional broadcast led model wasn't working for women's football and actually it's closer and you know trying to just be a version of men's football isn't well, it wasn't the way forward and actually what's happening is that there is more of a, a grassroots build it up from the grassroots more akin to things like Park Run and Tough Mudder where 
these these are sports that are growing outside of broadcast. Broadcast is utterly irrelevant to them, and actually they they exist. They're social, um, media led, and and digitally led. And so women's football, it, it feels like that that might be a model. In which case, it, you know that that sponsors that's that's what they want. They want access to people. The stars are refreshing at the at the top end, but. Um, as Amanda said, you've got some great activities going on on the grassroots end of things. In the same way we've we've always seen in the US, mm. you know. So that it's it's a different it's a different model. Actually, copying the sort of broadcast that that linear broadcast model that has happened in football, a lot of sports have fallen into the trap of trying to copy that by saying, right, okay, we need a TV deal, we need a sponsor who wants eyeballs, and then the the the, the rest will fall in fall in line. And actually, that's not the case anymore, and doesn't need to be. So there is there is an argument, I think, to suggest that actually the model, the business model for women's um, sport, might well be different. And it's, there is a tangible. I think just to to finish off, there's a tangible shift in um, brands seeing a business case in women's sport. It used to be it, it was closer to charity than than commercial um, investment. There was a sort of okay, well, we will support women's sport with a with a you know a magnanimous gesture. But now, actually, what we're seeing is is brands coming in and saying, actually, no, there's a business case to to be made for this, and that's critical to for, to evolve. So this summer has seen so many football transfers sort of sealed on social media. You know, what is the mix now for a communications professional in terms of uh, content via social media and the use of traditional media? I think over the last couple of years, you've seen more clubs um, not have press conferences with players that have signed and have announced via their own social media platforms and the platforms of players. And that gets out far and wide. It's, it's global. But what's interesting for me is there is absolutely a place for traditional media, and I think there always will be, even though um, newspaper sales are declining the the football writers in particular have got a bigger voice as what they've ever had because they've got their own big social media followings and also they are on radio stations and on tv as well talking about it and during this particular time frame what tends to happen is when nothing is um, on the record until things have happened things are happening off the record and i imagine there's a lot of briefing that's taking place with particularly um, football writers and, and maybe Sky Sports news reporters so they've got a flavour of what's going on and some of that is about jockeying to get your player to the right club for the right price or retaining a player so I do absolutely feel there's a, a place for traditional media still yeah. Tarek, how do, in terms of, of how, does, how does it work from the journalist perspective? I mean the, the, the sort of lead time on a scoop these days I'm thinking is absolutely tiny in terms of breaking a story or breaking a transfer story there's so little in it there's an enormous amount of work in, in generating it but trying to be the be the person with the news is is the value of that is quite small depends, exactly it depends on the, is, it, is it the journey or the destination right I think I think a lot of the interest is in the journey and then by the time X signs for your team you've kind of been teased about it for for quite quite a long time, and there's also um, I wonder for the for the newspapers. By the time the person has signed, what they have to say about it is probably not as interesting as the chase, um, which kind of to me gives a, a lot of value um, to particularly the tabloids of of 
um, teasing the, 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 the potential readers or the fans with what is possible rather than what is actually going to happen. So you would have seen, I mean, I think uh, one of my colleagues, actually Rory Smith, did a really good story um, about transfer rumours. The transfer rumours often are what drive the traffic rather than the transfer fact. So he, he, he tracked down this guy in Ireland who, um, who, who, who thought, you know what? I think all of this is nonsense. I don't think these guys um, actually care what they're, whether it's true or not. And they're going to they're gonna just publish some of this stuff. Fake news. Fake, fake, I, I think almost football transfers was, was ahead of this kind of hashtag fake news period by 20 years, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, and he, he decided, yeah, I'm just going to be a guy who creates, um, I think it was a website, right? Where, well, he just invented a player, didn't he? And, and that's right, he invented a player. Invented a whole career and um, got media to report he'd been bought and sold and so stuff was printed endlessly before you but Jim before you get on your high horse there, oh, yeah, there is yeah. the uh, Dean Holdsworth question that we need to uh, right, to address yeah. I don't know if you want to tell um, that story yes well yeah oh, God, yeah. this goes back to the disastrous pieces of PR actually in a similar time launching the Arsenal website this is how these things began I was work, again working in a PR agency not working alone there might be others listening to this podcast that will remember this story and, and played a part in it where we are representing a brand who is desperately trying... It was opening a new store. The brand, in case, actually was Timberland, who had opening a new store in Covent Garden. And they're trying to generate some interest about the store's now open. So we had... It's about 97 or something. So we had booked in to represent uh, Timberland. Lee Dixon of Arsenal might have gone to you for clearance, Amanda, and Dean Holdsworth of Wimbledon. And... You know, hello media. Would you like to come to the store? I mean, no, we're not very interested. Right, we need to do something. So we then essentially went into a room and put funny voices on it. Uh, can I speak to the sports desk? I've got some hot transfer news. I'm not talking unless someone pays me. What? Who, who are you? Right, I want to talk to someone. I can tell you, fact. Right, Dean Holdsworth is going to join Arsenal. And like, and, and I want payment. And put the phone down. And of course, we call up three hours later. I go, would you be interested in coming? We've got, you know, and they're like, Dean, Dean, is there any, any truth in your going to Arsenal? We're like, there you go. Picture in the paper and off you go. It's just job done. Fake job news done. from 20 years ago. I apologise to all those see? involved, but, you know. You see how people apologise to Amanda. You know, Danny, this is like, you know. <laughs> it doesn't shock me. Nothing shocks Danny. Now, we have come to the end of the first um, podcast. I want to thank our guests, Jim, Tarek, and Amanda, thank you, Danny, for your company. The Line is a collaboration between PR Week and Cake. It's produced and edited at the HKX building by Adam Vesey, Deo Adene, and Renato Camillo at Cake, and Matt Whip at PR Week. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Line via prweek.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till the next time, thanks for listening. The Line, where sport meets the marketing business.